Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of our special COVID-19 edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Peter Waltz. Lately on the program, we've been focusing on specific issues affecting businesses and organizations impacted by the spread of the virus. And in addition to touching on important stories and events happening in these countries, we're also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that are practicing on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily with their clients to help them manage through these difficult times. In an episode last week, we chatted with Todd Patopoulos, one of our leading immigration lawyers at the ELA. We shared some really important updates, and today we brought Todd back to the program, but this time he's assembled a group of other top U.S.-based immigration lawyers who are going to collectively give us a deeper dive into the changing immigration landscape. Also, as a bonus, we had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance of today's show to gather some questions, and the panel's going to address those in their commentary. Todd, welcome back. The audience is yours. Thanks, Peter, and hello, everyone, and thank you for being with us today. We're looking forward to a great discussion with you. We've got a fantastic panel. Uh, We're all immigration lawyers in the United States that have been with the ELA for many, many years and have worked together for a long time. And the idea for this presentation today evolved over the last month as myself and the other speakers today have been collaborating uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic on best practices and evolving issues that are impacting our clients and how best to address those. So we thought that we would want to take this show on the road, so to speak, at least virtually, and give you all the benefit of the things that we've been thinking about and uh, and some best tips uh, that we can provide. Please keep in mind that a lot of the information we're giving you today is evolving. Uh, the law is responding to the current pandemic and is not fully written, and it is being written as we speak um, in a lot of respects. And so this cannot be really constituted as legal advice, but we're going to do our very, very best to answer any and all questions that you guys do send us. Uh, We're not going to have a chance to get to every question today um, during during this presentation just because of the sheer volume of information that we're going to be presenting on. Uh, but we will do our best to respond to everything that is put into the Q&A um, in, in writing to you. Uh, as, as Peter mentioned, it's really helpful to us uh, if you can put the first name of the individual that you want to address the question to based on the topic, and uh, that will help us figure out how to quickly direct that to that person um, during the course of this presentation. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my partners in crime, so to speak, uh, first, Melanie Keeney is the founding shareholder of Tooth, Keeney, Cooper, Mohan, and Jackstat in wonderful St. Louis, Missouri. Um, from Atlanta, Georgia, Terry Simmons is a partner at Arnold Golden Gregory. And in Indiana is Jennifer Brown, a partner with Ice Miller. And in North Carolina is our friend and colleague, Elizabeth Gibbs. Uh, now that you know our speakers, I'd like to get started, so I'm going to turn the program over and uh, let Terry and uh, Melanie walk us through what I think is probably first and foremost on our minds right now, uh, and it's an unfortunate topic, but it's a reality that this COVID-19 pandemic has presented, and that's how to handle furloughs, layoffs, and terminations for international employees in the United States. Melanie and Terry, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Terry Simmons from Atlanta, and uh, 
What a topic. As Todd suggested, we've all been struggling the last couple of weeks as we work with our clients to determine what, if any, action items we have with regard to the foreign national workforce in connection with furloughs, layoffs, reductions in force. Everybody's approaching it in a different way, and I know that everybody is, is struggling to make the hard decisions as we try to keep our businesses up and running uh, and try to maintain our workforce, take care of everyone in this very difficult time where there are health and safety concerns. So we're looking at several different scenarios. Uh, a lot of employers are really having a, a tremendous issue in meeting payroll as their clients are not able to pay them. And so certainly in the southeastern United States, we've seen a lot of issues in automotive where uh, if the, the manufacturers are not manufacturing, the suppliers are not supplying. And so we're having to deal with those issues where companies are coming to us and saying, you know, what do we do if uh, we can't make payroll on our workforce and part of our workforce is on a particular visa type? We're also seeing instances where employers are taking the position, let's see if we can't reduce the number of hours worked uh, and the compensation so that people can maintain their benefits. And as you know, different benefits policies have different levels of work required to keep people insured from a, from a health insurance perspective. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing cuts across the board. So in some workforces, we're seeing a reduction of, say, 25% of salaries. And working with our colleagues in our firms who are advising from an employment law perspective, they're thinking about the U.S. citizens and they're making plans which will hopefully keep everybody in business, take care of all the employees, and we know the economy is going to come back, and so certainly we don't want to lose that very valuable workforce. What we're telling them from an immigration standpoint is you can make certain decisions with regard to the U.S. citizens on your workforce, but there are special requirements with regard to the people on visas. And as you know, we all have the obligation of strict compliance from an immigration perspective. Uh, the Trump administration has been very clear that, uh, that, that businesses are responsible to strictly comply with the immigration rules. Otherwise, there may be some fines, penalties, and other consequences of not complying with the immigration rules. At the same time, noncompliance also affects the people. So people working in your workforce uh, who are on E-visas or L-visas, H-visas, or other types of visas, any noncompliance can affect them and their future working in this country as well as their families. And so we have to think about that as well. So we're grappling right now with the legal considerations. What do they mean? What do we need to do when we're making the decisions to either furlough our employees and say, we hope there will be work in a couple of months, we want you to, to be here and ready to be up, back up and running when there is, or general reductions in salaries, reductions in hours, and other issues. We've hoped very much that we would get some guidance from the government, uh, particularly with regard to E-visa holders, L-visa holders, TN-visa holders. We've not seen that guidance. A little bit later, uh, Melanie will be talking to some uh, issues with regard to H-visa holders. We have seen some guidance in that area with regard to E-visa holders, which are the, the folks coming to the United States working as essential employees for foreign-owned business, uh, which has a treaty with the United States. We've not seen that guidance. With regard to L-visa, 
visa holders who are the multinational transfers working in the United States as executives, managers, and specialized knowledge employees. We've not seen specific guidance, nor with regard to the TN visa holders. So we're operating under the law and regulations that we've known to date. And the issue is that with regard to L visa holders, E visa holders, T and visa holders, the regulations provide, particularly with regard to the strongest regulation with regard to L visa holders, that if there's any changes, material changes in the terms and conditions of employment, you're required to notify the government of this change. Same with the E-Visa regulations. It's worded a little bit differently with regard to the E-Visa regulations because uh, it, it refers to substantive changes or non-substantive changes in the terms and conditions of employment. But generally, when you complete and file immigration applications, immigration petitions, you're bound to stay within the terms of what you promised either the Department of State or the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services or Customs and Border Protection with regard to the employment of your workforce. And if you don't, there's an affirmative obligation to notify the government of a material change. So with regard to the scenarios I was just discussing, if you're reducing payment compensation by 25%, if you're reducing hours down to 32 hours or 30 hours to remain within health insurance compliance, or any other reductions, is that a material change in the terms and conditions of employment? That's what we're wrestling with. I believe that it likely is, particularly when you look to the L visa classification, because as you know, those of you who are employing people in L visa status, you know that you're subject to audit and that the Department of Homeland Security can send someone to audit the business. And when when the auditors do come, we're hoping they're not going to come in the next couple of weeks, but when they do come, you're required to show that you're staying within the terms and conditions of employment. So they can check the salary, they can check the number of hours that you told the government they would be working. And so the conservative approach, certainly with regard to L's, E's, and TN's, is if you decide to change the terms and conditions of employment, that you do an affirmative notification to the government by filing an amendment and letting them know that because of the very difficult times we're in right now, that you're having to revise or change the number of hours or the compensation. In this day and age, of course, with strict compliance under this administration, we're erring on the conservative side. But it's up to interpretation depending on your particular scenario. So we're having to work very closely depending on what you're deciding to do as a business. So with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to Melanie, who's going to discuss the H visa category and where we actually had some guidance uh, that, that we weren't in, uh, exactly very fond of, but nonetheless. So, Melanie. Thanks a lot, Terry. Um, so I'm going to be speaking about, uh, as Terry said, the H-1B visas. And just so everybody's on the same page, those of you who have H-1B workers know that uh, when you filed your petitions for the H-1B, you filed something called an LCA, a labor condition application with the Department of Labor. And in today's world, um, when we've got people in shelter in place and such, um, we look back and say, okay, with the changes in the work sites, are we as employers obligated to do anything differently than we were doing uh, a month ago? And the answer is yes, uh, in certain circumstances. So I thought it would be helpful for you all to think of a hypothetical as we walk through these various 
scenarios. So just imagine that you are at your own company. I'm going to call it ABC Corporation, and you've got five workers, and they're all doing the same job. Three of them are U.S. citizens, and two of them are H-1B workers. And now you find yourself in a shelter-in-place with a shelter-in-place order, and your workers can't come to the normal work site. And you think back, oh, my gosh, that LCA that I posted, it had my work site or maybe a couple of work sites, but, but my employees, they're all at home. They're sheltering at home. So they're remotely working. What do I do? So let's just assume that Bob is one of your H-1B workers and Sue is your other H-1B worker. And Bob lives within the metropolitan statistical area where your workplace is. And he lives there, but he's, and he's working from home. Do you have to do anything to comply with the Department of Labor regulations? And um, you guys might remember when you, when you filed your LCA, you also had this posting requirement for the LCA. Some of you post hard copies. Some of you post electronically. Some of you might actually notify your workforce directly through an email. But what it, now this person is, is in a new unanticipated work site. So if the, we got some guidance from the Department of Labor uh, on March 20th that said if you're within the MSA, if the person's house is within the MSA, you don't have to file a new LCA. You don't have to amend your H-1B. But guess what you're supposed to do? This sounds incredibly stupid. You're supposed to post. So we're telling, H we're telling employers to tell their H-1B workers living in houses within the MSA, you can check with your attorneys to find out you know, uh, what, what the MSA really is, it's within the area, uh, to post. So where do you post? You're supposed to post in two conspicuous locations. So really, in your house? So that's like um, the refrigerator and maybe the bathroom door. I'm not sure. It is silly. It feels silly. But if you want to be the super safe person that or employer, that's what you do. So talk to your counsel about the LCA posting and doing that for Bob because Bob lives within the MSA. So you want to instruct him. Normally, you're supposed to post before you send Bob to that work site. Um, well, you probably didn't have time. So guess what? The Department of Labor and their guidance said, hey, given the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, we'll give you like a 30-day grace period as soon as practical, practical or within 30 days. But now let's turn to Sue. Sue lives outside the MSA. Oh, my gosh. Now what do you do? So if Sue's, lives, Sue's outside the MSA, normally you have to amend the H-1B. That seems incredibly silly right now, right, in the middle of this pandemic. But that's the guidance. There might be some short-term placement rules that would apply. Um, there's a 30-day rule and a 60-day rule. Uh, they do have some uh, requirements under the regulations related to paying incidentals of employees. So I encourage you all uh, to look at that, see if those short-term placement rules might apply so that you would not have to uh, amend your petition. But if the short-term placement doesn't apply, the person lives outside, um, then you may be stuck with amending your petition. So I would encourage you to talk to your counsel about that. Okay, so now let's think. Now, now ABC Corporation, um, you know, we've, you've been able to hang on um, and pay all your workers. You've got people working remotely. But now um, things are, are really tough, and you're going to have to make some cuts. And you're trying to be creative in how you do that. So your first cut that you're going to do is you're like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to terminate this H-1B worker, Bob and Sue, or maybe both of them. Let's say Bob and Sue are going to be terminated. What do you have to do? How do you effectively terminate someone and end your obligations? So you have to notify the USCIS, and you have to offer return transportation. There's a grace period that may apply to that person, so we'll talk about what happens to Bob and Sue once they're terminated, um, and Terry's going to talk about that in a minute. So, um, so that's one concept. 
So now in the termination, let's just assume right now that you think, okay, I don't have to terminate Bob and Sue, but I need to convert Bob and Sue to part-time. They were both full-time workers. The LCA had full-time listed, um, but now we got to cut them back. So what do you need to do? That is, as Terry mentioned, a, you know, when you have a material change and Department of Labor uh, would consider that to be a material change, as would USCIS, so you'd have to amend before you convert someone to a part-time so that's something kind of a more of a hard and fast rule on that so then you've got the other what I consider the toughest issue which is the furloughs so with furloughs uh, or benching we call it benching let's say unpaid leave can you put somebody on unpaid leave can they choose to be uh, on unpaid leave so the Department of Labor has regulations on this and unfortunately we haven't gotten any great guidance from them in this circumstance you're not supposed to bench or you're not supposed as an employer you're not supposed to uh, withhold payment for an to an h1b employee for non-productive time unless that non-productive time is really sort of uh, uh, associated with something unrelated to work for instance they're caring for a sick relative they, the Department of Labor has some regulations that actually list some of these, when can you not pay someone. Um, if they get hit by a truck and they're incapacitated, no, you don't have to pay them. If they're touring the United States, you don't have to pay them. Well, what if it's a pandemic? Guess what? The regulations do not address a pandemic. Um, the conservative approach is to keep them paid. Uh, that way you don't run afoul of the Department of Labor regulations. There may be an aggressive reading of that regulation it's uh, 22 CFR 655.731 for those of you that are taking notes talk to your attorneys about it there might be a bit of an aggressive read that you might be able to do there with um, with that um, but but now you're thinking to yourself well I've got uh, three US citizens and Bob and Sue and Bob and Sue if I'm going to keep them paid and I'm going to put three US citizens on furlough unpaid Am I walking into a discrimination case? And the concern is, you might be. So, so why is that? Because if you, there are two laws that you need to, two federal laws that you need to think about, and also think about your state laws. So this is where immigration and employment law sort of collide, perhaps, um, because under the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you have to treat people equally with respect to the terms and conditions of their employment. You can't discriminate on the basis of, you know, race, national origin, national or you know, gender, religion. Um, gen I, can't, I think I missed one. But anyway, uh, one of them is national origin. And would you believe that federal courts have said that U.S. citizens, if, you, if an employer prefers a foreign national in some way uh, in the terms and conditions of employment as opposed to a, a U.S. citizen, that can be discrimination. So you, the, the normal uh, for you employment people out there, McDonnell Douglas versus Green, burden shifting test were, uh, applies in the Title VII context. So you'd need to have a legitimate non-discriminatory reason why you would treat that H-1B worker differently. So perhaps one workaround is to look at your five workers and make a decision as to whether uh, perhaps you can keep some of the U.S. citizens also on payroll if you're going to have to pay the H-1B worker. So, and, and also look at, is there a differentiation? Is there a legitimate reason to treat them differently? Um, I'd encourage you to talk to your employment counsel. Um, also, the Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 274B, has non-discrimination provisions that uh, also can apply. 
Um, it is a little-known law that protected workers are U.S. citizens, lawful permanent residents who applied for naturalization within six months of eligibility, and asylees. And the people who are not protected are the foreign nationals. Um, that The INA speaks to discrimination in the context of hiring and firing, um, more so than in general terms of employment. So um, the enforcement of the Immigration and Nationality Act's uh, non-discrimination provisions is actually handled by the IER, which is the Immigrant Employee Rights Section of the Department of Justice. So I'd encourage you to, uh, actually, you could just Google it. They have a big, you know, like phone numbers you can call if U.S. citizens feel like they've been discriminated against. So um, take a look at that. The uh, regulations are, uh, are found at 28 CFR uh, 44.200, and there are there is an attorney's fees provision in there, um, and some back pay provisions. But anyway, those are the so discrimination. You're kind of in uh, no good deed goes unpunished category here. You want to treat the H-1B worker appropriately and fairly under the regulations that you're required to do. But don't forget about those U.S. citizens that put you in a bit of a bind. I think I have hit my time limit, so I'm going to turn it back over to Terry to talk a little bit about the grace period and about uh, concerns about unemployment. Well, one of the toughest things that employers are having to deal with these days is when the they make the decision that they're going to have to terminate somebody who is here uh, on a visa, and, and the person says, well, gosh, you know, what do I do? I, I, I don't have anywhere to go. In fact, there may be a travel ban in effect that I can't leave the country. Maybe I can't even get a flight. Do I have to leave tomorrow? What does this mean? And and it's a very, very tough conversation to have. And a lot of the folks I'm working with, and I know all of us are working with, are trying to be as compassionate as they can to, to help with regard to consulting with the employees about what happens and, and what uh, they can do to protect their status while staying in the U.S. Fortunately, in January, in January of 2017, the Department of Homeland Security published a final rule which allows for a grace period of 60 days in certain circumstances for people who are here on E1, E2, E3, H1B, uh, L1, O1, or TN visa status. And what that rule says is that if someone has been working in the United States in one of these classifications, and that person and his or her dependent shall not be considered to have failed to maintain non-immigrant status solely on the basis of the cessation of the employment on which the person's classification was based for up to 60 consecutive days or until the end of the authorized validity period, whichever is shorter, once during each authorized validity period. So with each and every person that is being terminated who's asking you about a grace period, we have to look very closely, what is their visa status? When would it have terminated? When would the 60 days come into play? Would it be an entire 60 days? And we have to make sure that there hasn't been multiple validity periods. So it's a very case-by-case -case analysis, but in general, uh, folks should have 60 days uh, as a grace period to remain in the United States. During that time, they're not authorized to work, but they can seek alternative employment. And so during the two months, they can look to see if, 
if another employer will petition for a visa authorizing them to remain in the United States. So fortunately, we have that so that people do not feel compelled in this uh, this, this, this terrible crisis that they have to leave the country right away or otherwise be subjected to, to immigration violations and, and removal proceedings. In addition, what we're looking at for a lot of employees is actually uh, helping them to apply for a change of status to B-2 or tourist status. With that change of status, they can apply to remain in the United States for up to six months as tourists. They're not authorized technically to work but they're protected to stay here so that they can take care of packing up their belongings, in some cases selling their house, or taking all the other actions that they need to take in order to depart the United States and find a, a place to live in their home country. And so that's also an option available that we're looking at in connection with a lot of folks. The other thing that I will uh, give a heads up on is that it's really important in counseling the folks to look to see if you have any global policy with regard to to termination of foreign nationals in the United States. We've worked with a lot of companies that actually have global expat policies or other other uh, policies of the, the companies worldwide, which may affect how you'll treat an employee, whether you'll pay for return transportation, even if it's not required by law, uh, how you notify them of a particular termination. And so it's important to check with the parent companies and other companies to see if there's a policy that will affect what you do in the time after you are forced to terminate somebody. I'll also throw out there that one of the things that the employees are also asking about uh, very quickly is, do I have a right to unemployment insurance? And unemployment insurance is, is regulated by state, and so every state is different. I know our group that is speaking today has talked about how different it looks in Georgia to California to Michigan and other places. Some states have not even contemplated foreign nationals applying for unemployment insurance, and it's very hard to find some guidelines. But generally, we're seeing a lot of the states uh, proclaim some emergency unemployment uh, provisions saying that in fact, you don't have to be available for employment to receive unemployment insurance. You don't have to be actively seeking a job. Some provisions that we believe will help foreign nationals also in this grace period to apply for and to receive unemployment insurance. It's still uncharted territory. Uh, uh, there was just a report this morning on NPR about how difficult it is for anyone right now to get through to anyone on the in the unemployment uh, state offices. And so it's uncharted territory. But for now, we believe that, that in a lot of states, there will be a right for foreign nationals to apply for and receive unemployment insurance. So with that, I will turn it back over to Todd. Great. Thank you so much. That was a lot of information. And so as folks have questions for either Terry or Melanie, please please go ahead and use that, uh, that question and answer box, and we're trying to respond to those as quickly as we can for you. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Jennifer Brown. Jennifer, we've been talking about non-immigrant or temporary visas like the H and the E and, and uh, TNs and so forth. Tell the audience a little bit about the impact all of this is having on employers sponsoring individuals for permanent residency, please. 
Great. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Terry. Uh, so for some of you, green card may be the last thing on your mind right now. For others of you, uh, green card sponsorship is part of a complex strategy to retain critical talent. And for some of you, it's just presenting one more set of deadlines that are on your mind during a, a, a complicated time. In any event, I've got a little bit of good news to share from the U.S. Department of Labor. Most DOL aspects of the immigration practice are already electronic, which is enormously helpful during a pandemic and, uh, and under any number of other circumstances. So LCAs that are a part of the H-1B filing process are electronically submitted, of course. Uh, prevailing wages that are needed uh, for both H-1B, but often uh, formally sought uh, as a part of the green card sponsorship process. PERM applications, which is step one of the green card sponsorship process for most people, and audit responses to those PERM applications, those are all happening electronically. Uh, so that hopefully is not presenting a great deal of business interruption for, for most of us. Um, in any event, um, the Department of Labor has published some guidance to make uh, things a little bit easier for employers and their counsel during this uh, tumultuous, tumultuous time. So ordinarily, on the first step of green card, uh, for, which is the first step for most people, this PERM application, testing of the U.S. labor market to prove no U.S. workers are qualified and available for an offered position, usually um, the original uh, approval that comes at the end or at the conclusion of the PERM labor certification process is coming by paper only. So while the PERM application is submitted electronically, the output, the approval notice from the U.S. Department of Labor is coming by paper. However, Department of Labor published some guidance and indicated that between March 25th and continuing through June 30th, the Department of Labor will be issuing certified PERMs electronically to employers and their counsel. Uh, if for some reason employers or attorneys of record aren't able to receive the certified PERM by email, then they will send the original via UPS regular delivery. Uh, now, DOL, of course, understands that what happens next in the green card sponsorship process is not the Department of Labor's jurisdiction. So th the next step in the green card sponsorship process following a labor certification approval is the filing of an I-140 immigrant petition, and that filing, of course, is made with USCIS. So having a, an electronic approval from DOL is helpful. However, we don't yet know whether or not USCIS is going to return the favor, so to speak, and willingly accept this electronic, uh, this printed version of the electronic approval that employers and their counsel are receiving from DOL to satisfy the I-140 filing. Uh, DOL seems to think that they should and indicate so in their guidance, uh, but that remains to be seen. We have a six-month deadline to file I-140s upon PERM certification, uh, and we may need that time uh, during these uh, difficult circumstances. I-140s still are very much being filed by paper, uh, so it remains to be seen how CIS will react to DOL's electronic approval of the PERM application. But for most of us, that is all we're going to get from DOL through June 30th in any event. 
There also have been some other, some additional guidance published by the Department of Labor that talks about deadlines. So to the extent that there are deadlines being triggered by DOL in connection with prevailing wage, requests for information, supervised recruitment deadlines, PERMA audit deadlines, if those deadlines have occurred between March 13th of 2020 and May 12th of 2020, DOL will consider the response or the submission to be timely if the response is submitted no later than May 12th. So we're getting a little bit of breathing room from DOL with respect to RFIs, supervised recruitment, and PERM audits in particular. The other thing that DOL is offering in connection with PERM, labor market testing is some relief on recruitment deadlines. So usually recruitment um, uh, is conducted and then with a hun within 180 days of the recruitment activity, the PERM deadline is triggered, meaning the PERM application has to be submitted to the Department of Labor. Uh, DOL is, uh, again, offering a little bit of uh, relief for any recruitment that began on or after September 15th of 2019. We now have until May 12th to get PERM application submitted electronic. So a little bit of a grace period, about 60 days of relief or recruitment that began in September. And then that obviously is on a rolling schedule. Uh, we've got a little bit of time. The notice of filing, which is uh, an internal posting that's a part of the recruitment activity typically, usually has to be done within 30 days uh, of the filing of the uh, PERM application. And again, they're giving a little bit of relief. It still has to be done by hard copy, which for those of us working remotely might be a little challenging to accomplish, but they are giving uh, employers a little bit of relief on that same sort of sliding schedule uh, of, of that May 12th deadline. One thing to keep in mind with respect to layoffs that Melanie and Terry spoke a bit about is that um, you might remember that there are uh, a, a line of questions that talk about layoffs in the PERM filing context. So one of the questions in particular in the ETA 9089 asks employers to disclose specifically whether or not a layoff has occurred in the area of intended employment in the occupation involved in the application or in a related occupation within the last six months. And so as more and more employers unfortunately may be facing layoff situations, that may affect their ability to file PERM applications. Uh, and so those questions need to be uh, vetted very carefully with counsel. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't file the PERM application. It may mean that you have to consider, notify and consider U.S. workers that were laid off that are relevant to the occupation before you're able to file those PERM applications. Or it may be mean that we have to delay filing of the PERM application to get beyond that six-month window. Uh, for pending cases, so PERMs that have already been filed, there's no affirmative obligation to volunteer or notify the Department of Labor of a post-filing layoff. But I will say for a PERM application that's currently pending, given the economic circumstances that, that are uh, being, that the U.S. economy is facing across uh, really all industries and in a variety of markets, I think there's a, a high likelihood of an increased risk of audit and even supervised recruitment. That's certainly something that we saw during the last recession in, in 2008 and, and months or a couple of years following. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Todd. Great. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, next, I'd like to turn it over to Elizabeth Gibbs. Elizabeth, 
you and I and, and the rest of this crew have been talking nonstop over the last month about how the USCIS and Department of State and other agencies are continuing to operate during a, a world of of uh, uh, shelter-in-place orders and, and remote uh, workplaces. Can you bring us up to speed on, on what you're seeing and how you're advising clients? Sure. Thanks, Todd. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how quickly I think everything is changing for everybody, but that's really come into effect with respect to traveling in and out of the United States as well as with respect to filings of petitions with the Immigration Service, et cetera. Um, typically what I do and had been doing already in this heightened era of uh, immigration compliance, as Terry alluded to at the beginning of our, um, is timing. Timing is incredibly critical to any sort of immigration filing, and now more so than ever. Um, with the various changes, including the suspension of premium processing and the closure of consulates to routine processing, uh, visa processing services, um, we have seen that we need to come up with better and um, more flexible strategies to keep people in status. Unfortunately, through all of the decisions that companies are having to make with respect to their employee uh, employees and their workforce, Foreign national employees have the heightened uh, concern of whether or not they will remain legally entitled to be in the United States through all of this. And their ability to leave the United States is also uh, more challenged. Uh, so timing is more important. Um, we, I mentioned the suspension of premium processing with respect to all I-129 uh, non-immigrant petitions as well as to the I-140s the immigrant visa petition relating to permanent residency. You can file with respect to the I-129 non-immigrant petitions of those cases up to six months in advance. Uh, and, and it's important to go ahead and review to the extent you are looking at extensions or amendments, whatever it may be, uh, to review your foreign workforce and determine what filings you need to make now. There is a group of uh, non-immigrant petition holders who may benefit from a continuation of work authorization while an extension is pending for up to 240 days from the date their previous petition expires. Um, but that is also a, a strategy that we use but don't want to rely on where, or you, you don't need to. Um, the other thing to consider is uh, whether or not um, the case might be approved while the petition um, is is still the underlying or extension petition is still pending. Uh, for example, uh, employment authorization documents related to permanent residency filings also have a continuation benefit. But uh, employment authorization documents for spouses of ENLs do not, and so. You, have, you may have a group of individuals, um, particularly with premium processing, no longer being available for the principal filing uh, that may fall out of a period of work authorization. So timing is important uh, in, in looking at all of your cases. We've also seen over the course of really almost on a daily basis uh, announcements coming out from various government agencies, whether it's the Department of Labor, the National Visa Center, USCIS, um, suspending certain services. USCIS offices for in-person services have been suspended now through May 3rd. 
Um, the Department of Labor is suspending daily mail processing at the Atlanta and Chicago offices. And so uh, looking in those, those backup plans that we used to have for many years, so the safety net, uh, are not necessarily available. So looking ahead at your cases and at your needs over the next six to months to 12 months is, is important. Um, that said, the government has provided some flexibility in certain cases and in certain instances. Uh, as mentioned, we're seeing daily updates. So possibly, um, as, as Melanie and, and Perry both referred to, we're waiting for guidance on certain points regarding furloughs, uh, if there is any flexibility to be put in place. But there have been, by ICE, some uh, flexibility as to students and remote learning or electronic transmission of I-120s or I-20, excuse me, um, for those people that are here as tourists on visa waiver programs that normally have a hard stop at 90 days, uh, there are some satisfactory departure uh, required to uh, Customs of Border Protection to the extent that they're not able to leave the United States on time. Again, through this, I'd like to remind everybody that uh, status is still important for foreign nationals. Maintaining status is, is still important. That's not something that will be forgiven. And so looking at those deadlines and confirming that your uh, foreign workforce remains in status is important. Um, but other areas of flexibility, some of which will only be in effect during the course of the national emergency, um, include uh, submitting reproduced original signatures on, on forms, benefit forms and filings with CIS. Um, Jennifer alluded to some of the extensions of deadlines with respect to the Department of Labor. There have also been some extensions of deadlines to respond to requests for evidence, notices of intent to deny that are received between March and May 1st. Jennifer will speak at the end regarding some of the I-9 compliance. Uh, flexibility that's put into place. So there are some measures, but you still need to watch out for deadlines and the scope through which those flexibility, the flexibility and the measures will be put in place. Um, finally, in terms of travel, again, we all know that travel is not recommended by the CDC um, at this point, but foreign nationals may still need to travel, uh, either to try to leave the United States or uh, in some instances, to try to come back, the consular services are closed for routine visa services at the moment. For the most part, you need to look at various consular websites to see what that specific consulate is doing. But in that said, they are processing visas that are deemed to be in the national interest. So H-2 visa category still being processed for a national uh, medical workers are being put at the front of the line. And then those cases at the consulates at which electronic filing of e-visa registrations, for example, or, or e-cases, some of those consulates are still processing cases. They're simply not scheduling interviews at this point. Um, the, the closure of the Canadian and Mexico borders to land travel, um, you just need to see whether or not you fall within an essential work or an essential travel category. Um, so looking at uh, whether or not your workforce can leave the United States or come into the United States is also a case-by-case -case, uh, review in terms of who they are, what they're doing, where they need to go. Um, 
I think that's really about the end of my time of tips for the paper practice. I'll touch on just briefly um, to the extent that you can file online, for example, the Department of Labor filings, um, then you might consider it USCIS is not quite as up to speed on that sort of thing. There's a handful of cases, case types that can be filed online. Um, wet signatures, uh, to the extent that we're within the national emergency, the Immigration Service has allowed for uh, produced, um, reproduced signatures of uh, original signatures submitted with the applications and petitions, but you must maintain a original copy, an original signature um, to be held in the case of an audit. Um, and that is not an electronic signature either. Um, but these are all kind of practical issues. A lot of it is case by case to be considered um, as to your specific situation, as I think any of our, our guidance is. Um, but we're seeing new uh, reports coming out from the government every day. And so talk with your legal counsel about what strategies might be available for your workforce. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Uh, it's really, really helpful, and uh, and it is a, a very quickly evolving issue with priorities being given right now to the healthcare industry, obviously, to bring over international talent to assist us in this pandemic. So we're all watching that closely. Um, I'd like to now turn it over to Jennifer Brown to, to quickly run us through changes to the I-9 and E-Verify compliance process. For those of you, I know we have a number of people that are attending from Europe and the Middle East and other part, parts around the globe. Um, just to orient you in the United States, the I-9 process and E-Verify process, uh, those are processes by which employers are required to verify the employment eligibility of all workers, whether international or, or domestic. Uh, so that's what that refers to. Um, Jennifer, can you quickly bring us up to speed on, on changes in, in practice that we're seeing in that area? Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. So the, the theme here today perhaps is, uh, boy, a lot of different federal agencies touch on U.S. immigration law, uh, Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Labor, um, and I-9 and E-Verify is no exception. So you'll see references in a moment to Social Security Administration and uh, Bureau or Department of Motor Vehicle uh, Agencies at the state level. So we just have a lot of touch points with a lot of state and federal agencies within U.S. immigration law. The other theme, I suppose, of today is uh, we've gotten a little bit of guidance, not a lot of guidance, and even the guidance we have, it, we're finding a little inadequate. I'd certainly say that that's the case with respect to I-9 uh, employment verification during these uh, difficult times. So uh, we got a little excited for a moment uh, when there was an announcement of some relaxation of I-9 employment verification uh, coming from DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Um, but then when we got into the, the weeds and the details, I uh, quickly discovered that uh, it, it left a little bit to be desired. So this relaxation on the examination of original identity and employment authorization documents is only for employers and workplaces that are operating remotely. To the extent that an employer has employees physically present, even if they're not the ones that normally are tasked with I-9 uh, employment verification responsibilities, there will be no exceptions 
with the rule that in-person evaluation of uh, documents occurs. So the way I-9 employment verification normally works is that an HR professional meets with the new employee as a part of the onboarding process, and there is a physical examination of the identity and employment verification documents. And then that information is used to transcribe information from those documents to the I-9 form. Uh, unfortunately, um, the suspension of the usual rule on the evaluation of original documents, again, only applies to employers who have uh, operation, uh, that are operating remotely. So uh, for every other employer, uh, to the extent that they have people in the office, again, even people who normally don't fill out the I-9, you're going to have to train them on how to do the I-9 if you're expecting to onboard or conduct re-verification uh, timely. Um, so they have said that they will evaluate quarantines and lockdowns on a case-by-case -case basis. So I think employers have to use their judgment uh, about this, but just know you are not getting a blanket exception from the normal rule on evaluation of original source documents. Uh, so timely completion is still required. Um, if the uh, if you are making use of those uh, relaxed rules on evaluation of original source or original identity employment authorization documents, once the normal business operations resume, there are a couple of things you have to do. The employee has to present those original documents for in-person verification within three business days. Uh, you need to enter COVID-19 in Section 2 additional information in the additional information field on the I-9 form, um, and the employer should add that the documents were physically examined along with the dates that the originals were inspected in Section 2 in that additional information field or in Section 3, depending on the, on the, case, uh, on the circumstances. So, if you are able to make use of uh, evaluation of those original documents through an electronic means, you know, either by looking at them on an email or by, through video conferencing, again, that only applies if your workplace is operating remotely and really what they mean is exclusively operating remotely. The other challenge that we're seeing uh, right now is that we do have people in the office who can um, complete the I-9 in person uh, but people are showing up with expired documents, and that's because bureaus of motor vehicle offices, departments of motor vehicle, the Security Administration, USCIS, they're all, uh, many of them are closed to the public right now. And so I've gotten a lot of questions, and I'm sure my, my co-panelists have as well, about can I accept expired documents? Technically, officially, the answer is no. They have not changed the rule about documents needing to be valid at time of presentation, um, our advice is that you ought to be asking those individuals to look at the list of acceptable documents to see if there's some alternative document that they could be presenting. Uh, I think to the extent that you are in a jurisdiction where you are subject to a, a state level, a governor's stay-at-home order, you know, there might be instances in which that might be a reasonable risk to incur. Um, I would say, though, it's really important, as it is in all things with respect to U.S. immigration policy and employment law generally, to be consistent. So if you're willing to accept an expired document under these extraordinarily unusual times, you're subject to a stay-at-home order, um, 
and you know that the person has uh, access to a valid driver's license but just can't get it, doesn't have a passport, doesn't have anything else to offer in, the, in lieu of a valid document, then you have to be consistent across the board. So if you do it once, you've got to do it for other people too. On E-Verify, there haven't really been any meaningful changes to the E-Verify system um, because it's an electronic verification system. So by definition, it should be accessible to employers, and generally speaking, uh, it follows the I-9 compliance process. Um, however, E-Verify has confirmed that they are willing to extend the time to resolve tentative non-confirmations in recognition of the fact that SSA offices and DHS offices are closed to the public right now. So E-Verify seemed to get the memo, uh, but it, that has not been extended to general completion of the I-9 employment verification process. They have not given any kind of new time frame in which those tentative non-confirmations, which usually uh, employees have eight business days to resolve, so no new time frame, just as soon as possible to get those things resolved, presumably when offices are open again to give people the opportunity. And of course, no adverse action against employees during periods of tentative non-confirmation, whether it's an extended period or the normal period. Uh, if the E-Verify case has to be delayed for some reason, um, related to COVID-19, then, then that's the, the item that ought to be selected in the drop-down menu under the E-Verify system. So there's an option usually to explain why the E-Verify e case creation was delayed, and, and you can select other, and you can indicate COVID-19 as the reason for delay, but you should not be altering the start date um, that... Um, that was selected or that was reality. So instead, you should just acknowledge that the E-Verify case creation was delayed for whatever reason. I think that's all I've got, Todd. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, well, at this point, I'd like to turn it over to the panel for some questions and answers. And I would encourage those in the audience to continue to use the Q&A um, uh, menu at the very bottom of your screen. And, and write to us. We're going to try our best to respond to most of these, either in writing um, or you know verbally right now if we can. And I've selected a couple that I want to I want to throw out to the group. So the first one is from Ryan in Abu Dhabi, who would like to know about the possibility of part-time work in the UAE and in the relevant part to the UAE labor law during the COVID-19 period. And so while this is a, a U.S. immigration law-specific conference, and we can't address labor law issues that are under UAE law, I can tell you that the ELA, the Employment Law Alliance, does have experts in almost every country, uh, including the UAE. So if you go to ELA.law and hit the Find a Lawyer tab, you can quickly drop down and find an expert in that area. So for instance, if you have questions about uh, labor law in the UAE, you can reach out to our partner. Uh, Rebecca Ford at Rebecca.Ford at Clydeco.com. Um, but looking at the U.S. immigration law in particular, I know a lot of U.S. firms have employees, uh, international employees that may have traveled internationally and may be stuck now. So, Elizabeth, I I'm curious what you're advising clients and what, what our clients ought to be thinking about in terms of their ongoing immigration compliance obligations for employees who may have gone abroad and now can't get a visa stamp because consulates aren't uh, aren't taking appointments anymore. Sure. Um, and, and ultimately, this hasn't changed so much from uh, what we would advise pre-pandemic. 
Um, but also, but the immigration laws, the U.S. immigration in particular, refers to working and status in the United States. And so maintenance of status is a physically present in the United States issue. So if you have somebody who's working abroad for you from a U.S. immigration perspective, um, that's fine. They can, they can generally uh, work remotely outside of the United States with fewer concerns regarding maintenance of status. That said, I always encourage clients who want to have workers abroad um, to review the situation with corporate and tax counsel as well as local employment um, counsel because you do have potential issues when you have workers working for your U.S. entity abroad um, to trigger other things that are non-immigration points, um, whether it's establishing a permanent establishment on a tax basis, whether you're complying with local employment laws, um, and that type of thing. So these are not new issues to the pandemic um, from a U.S. immigration perspective in particular, remotely working abroad until such time as you can get through uh, and get your visa at the consulate uh, may be a good option, but consider the other points. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a, your, your, your point there that, that we can't really operate uh, in, a, in a bubble from a legal perspective is really, really fantastic to, to note for our audience. And, and certainly this issue highlights the need to look at things from a variety of different perspectives. So that can include tax or employment law in, in addition to the immigration law issues. Um, our next question comes from Martha, who's a, a compliance officer in San Francisco. And she asks, we are considering implementing a voluntary reduction in time program. Would this still have the same requirements as a furlough program, even though it's in, I'm sorry, even though it is voluntary? Melanie, I'm getting these types of questions a lot. Um, you know, what is the difference between a layoff and a furlough or a reduction in time program and, and so forth? What, what are the legal distinctions between these types of programs? I know you touched on this a little bit in your presentation. Uh, but could you could you pull this all together for us and, and look at the difference, if there are any, between a furlough and, and a layoff, for example, in terms of immigration status? Well, I think those are very interesting questions, frankly, uh, in the context of something like this COVID-19 pandemic, Todd. And when you look at the concept of what is a layoff, a layoff is, uh, under employment law, a true separation in employment. So uh, when you when let's take the pandemic out of it. So if we are just having a, a regular layoff, what is HR going to do? They're going to send a, a letter to the employee, you know, telling them that they've been laid off. They're going to usually give a COBRA notice saying that that person can, you know, seek COBRA benefits and, and, and how that rolls out. And that means that relationship has been severed. Um, and I And a furlough, on the other hand, is more hey, we can't keep, it's like an unpaid leave, right? You, we, we can't have you working right now. Uh, we can't pay you, but we're going to keep you on benefits, for instance, perhaps. So that's more of a furlough in my mind. I don't know about yours, Todd, but that's, that's what I consider a furlough. And a reduction in, in pay or a reduction in time, that's somebody being shifted from a full-time status where they're getting paid uh, wages on a regular basis for the work that they do to cutting them back. And that was, I did touch on a little bit between, from the H-1B context, you know, what, it, what is the employer's obligation if you're going to cut the time back and cut the payback, the commensurate payback. So um, the Department of Labor hasn't given us 
any guidance to say that, you know, we're allowed to do that in the H-1B context in a pandemic uh, without seeking permission, you know, the normal amending the petition through the USCIS. And, and when you're dealing with the H-1Bs, you know, you're dealing with the Department of Labor and the USCIS, so you have obligations to both. Um, so I think, uh, you know, a tough question could be, like, if you lay someone off and then rehire them, you know, or is that better than furloughing, for instance? Uh, if you have to pay them, you know, if you, if you need to get them off the payroll, unfortunately, the safest thing may be to do that layoff. I don't know, Todd, if you have any other thoughts on that topic that I might have missed. No, I think that's fantastic. I think that that's really, really helpful. Um, we have a question from, from Jean, um, who is in Honolulu, and Jean would like to know for E-2 visas, um, E-2 visa employees who are furloughed and no compensation can be issued, what reports, forms, and, and so forth do employers need to file with the USCIS or the embassy? Terry, this is right up your alley. I know you do a lot with, with E-2 visas. Um, can, can you help Gene out on, on this issue? Well, with regard to the E-2 visa, if, if someone unfortunately is laid off or furloughed, terminated, uh, the 60-day grace period should kick in to the extent that the employee is eligible for that 60-day grace period. And so fortunately, the individual would not be required to depart the U.S. right away. We're discussing with our employers and with uh, folks in E-2 visa status whether they envision departing the U.S. within the 60 days or whether they might uh, ultimately want to apply for a change of status to B status, which would allow them to remain in the U.S. for six months in order to prepare to depart the United States. So there's no formal requirement if uh, an E person is furloughed or terminated to actually notify the government in that sense, as there is in the H visa context, but there is an obligation of the individual to maintain status on an ongoing basis. And so we would hope that that grace period would help when they were seeking new employment with another company, or perhaps that they were seeking to rejoin the company after 60 days if the condition changes substantially. There are other cases, though, where someone is just reducing hours, say from 40 hours to 32 hours, and our approach to that scenario has been to advise that the company should notify the government that due to the pandemic, uh, the hours are being reduced and uh, the job is remaining the same, but the hours are being reduced and therefore the compensation is also being reduced so that the employer remains in compliance with the terms and conditions promised under the original application. One other thing I'll add, because I saw this on a related question, is that uh, e-visas are a little tricky because they are typically issued for a period of five years. In some countries, they're issued for less than five years. Switzerland is four years. Brazil is, is, uh, can be less. But, but in looking at the duration of the visa, what counts on the e-visa scenario is the I-94. So when folks enter the United States with the e-visa, it's not necessarily valid for five years. It's valid for a period of 
two years. And so if the visa runs out itself, that doesn't mean that their status runs out. So the status may still be valid, and you always have to look to that form I-94 to see what status is there, and that comes to the issue as well. If you have someone in e-visa status who cannot revalidate the e-visa at a consulate abroad, but who is coming into the United States, look to the I-94 to see the valid validity of the I-94 because that controls the status here, and you can also petition for an extension of that status inside the U.S. That's fantastic. And, and just to get everyone oriented on the I-94, I know we, our immigration lawyers throw out these acronyms, and, and uh, we live in an alphabet soup. But the I-94, Terry, that's the arrival departure record that, that is actually logging what the government is considering your status to be when you enter the country and for how long your status is, is to last. Am I getting that correct? Exactly that. And, and how, would, how does an employee find out what their I-94 record is? Because oftentimes these employees come into the country, they present their passport, there's a visa stamp in their passport, the immigration officer reviews it and logs something into the computer. They say, good day, sir, or good day, ma'am, and they walk into the country and they come into the U.S., but how do they really know what their I-94 record shows? All of the HR folks that are on this call today should be constantly telling their foreign national employees to check with the CBP website at the I-94 uh, area to monitor their status at all times in the United States because a lot of times Customs Border Protection can make mistakes on the admissibility of foreign nationals. The status is limited to the duration of the passport, and so a lot of times it's limited beyond what you would imagine. So you should always check this I-94 document, and it also becomes a critical document in these times of the pandemic because because when we're dealing with reductions in force or reductions in hours or other other types of changes in the area of employment, it's not the validity of the visa that's really counting. It's that I-94. And so when we're notifying the government with regard to any change, we're, we're filing a petition in the United States with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services referencing the exact status on that I-94 and notifying the government of any change in the promised terms and conditions of employment. Fantastic. Yeah. And one thing for, for folks out there that are in the HR function for a company or, or, or lawyers representing clients, you can quickly Google electronic I-94 record and you will quickly find the link that will take you to the C CBP, Customs and Border Patrol website, where anyone can log in their information from their passport page and figure out what the government is saying their I-94 record is to double check. So just something to note for you for housekeeping purposes for our RHR managers and, and other professionals uh, on the call, always, always check that because it's not beyond the realm of possibility that there's an error uh, and that can go unnoticed. And, and it's easy to, easy to correct if you correct it soon. It can be a real mess and difficult to correct if you correct it later. Um, and, and Terry, we, we were talking about E2 visas, and I, I want to just quickly orient the audience on what the E-2 visa is because it's not as commonly used, for example, as, as the H-1B or, or some of these other visas that, that, that uh, we've talked about. But the E-2 is a visa created by favorable trade treaties. You mentioned a few countries. Uh, the U.S. has trade treaties with different countries that allow for the transfer of, of investors for companies that are owned by individuals 
with uh, nationalities from those countries to bring over executives and managers and specialized knowledge workers. And, and Terry, that, that's a, an area that you spent a lot of time in, I know. Correct. Great. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so LaTanya in Bentonville, Arkansas, asks, if someone is furloughed, is the employee still required to pay the new Families First Coronavirus Response Act leave for the six listed circumstances? So um, I know we have a number of international um, uh, listeners on the call today, and, and to orient you very quickly, uh, over the last two weeks, the United States government has been passing a number of pieces of legislation that dramatically impact um, the employment relationship uh, in our country. And the Families First uh, Act that's, that's being referenced by LaTanya and her question is, is one of those pieces of legislation. And the regulations for that literally were issued last night. So it's, it's a very much evolving issue. Uh, but this is a great question, and, and, and so what this act generally does for certain employers, namely employers of 500 uh, employees or less, it provides for the opportunity for paid leave uh, in certain circumstances related to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And so the question is, is well, what if it's, there's an international worker that, that uh, has one of these events that happens under the statute that gives rise to uh, a leave of absence is that is that individual if they're a visa sponsored individual uh, covered by this and allowed to take advantage of the same benefits and the short answer to that is yes you need to treat the international employee just like you would the uh, the rest of your U.S. workforce that touches a little bit on what Melanie was speaking about uh, earlier in the presentation pertaining to discrimination issues and so forth so we always have to keep keep that in mind. Um, so uh, Sarah in London wanted to ask the next question, that is, what can we do for employees? They have a workforce in Texas, her company does, and what can we do for employees in Texas who are not willing to travel for work at the moment due to the coronavirus? I, pre I appreciate we cannot force someone to work, but our industry is still operating, which is they're in the marine offshore engineering business, and so that's an essential function or essential business in the United States right now under under various uh, stay-at-home orders. What options do we have for him? Unpaid leave, taking holidays, et cetera? This is a great question, and, and it, it really does, again, show the intersection between U.S. employment laws like the FFCRA that was just passed and U.S. immigration laws. Jennifer, can, can an employer in this circumstance offer the H-1B worker the option to use accrued time off? Yeah, I think they, they absolutely can. Um, I think that that would be a, an appropriate use. Um, you know, there's the option under for H-1B workers, if that's specifically what we're talking about, for uh, H-1B workers to go on an unpaid leave at their request. Um, and that's come up well before this pandemic under any number of circumstances where people need time to sort of uh, transition to new employment. Um, and my practice has been to get something in writing from the employee uh, to confirm that it is at their voluntary request. Um, and you mentioned the FFCRA. That's certainly something that ought to be reviewed. Um, there's a lot of fact-specific um, issues that ought to be uh, contemplated uh, as a part of that analysis, but I think all of those things are potentially on the table. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm 
I see that I'm running out of time, and I know that we've thrown a whole lot of information at the at the audience. Uh, we certainly appreciate everyone paying attention and, and participating and sending us questions. We will continue to answer questions uh, after this is done, um, and so please don't hesitate to keep writing, and, and, and we'll respond as quickly as we possibly can. So thank you, Jennifer, and, uh, and thank you, everybody else. I, I really do appreciate the rest of the panel for your participation. Um, and that really wraps it up. Uh, Pete, let me turn it back over to you to, to close out the program. Thanks, Todd, and thanks to our panel for their thoughts and comments. For our listeners, if you'd like to connect with any of our panelists on today's program or any lawyers within the ELA, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. You can find them by going to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page. Click on the drop-down box to connect with any of our lawyers in over 170 jurisdictions around the world. Also, make sure to register on the website so you can receive invitations to upcoming webinars, download our white papers, and get access to on-demand content from our library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.